if you have your Bibles, we will be finishing up Ruth today. This um, four-chapter book, uh, it's near to the front of your Bible. Um, you have the, what we call the Pentateuch, or the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That's how your Bible starts out. Those kind of are grouped together in our thinking probably uh, in the New Testament, the, the, the law, right? And then after that, uh, you have this amazing story of Joshua, the people entering into God's land, uh, and then Judges, this amazing story of how they, what happened once they were in the land. And then Ruth, it happens at the time of Judges. Uh, it actually starts out that way in the days when the Judges ruled. That's the backdrop that uh, everything is set and Ruth is set against, uh, and so it's uh, it's a is a masterful short story uh, that begins with a list of names and ends with a list of names. Uh, this this mirror and uh, it is this chapters two and chapter three. The scenes mirror each other. It's just it's just a masterfully told story. Um, and just to make sure that we catch up, so we're in, we're in Act 4 today, or Chapter 4, uh, we're in Act 4, but to make sure that we're kind of on the same page, uh, let's just recap really quickly so we just know where we are in the story. Uh, in Chapter 1, we're introducing this list of names to, um, against the backdrop of the judges, some, some ordinary people living ordinary lives, right? Uh, the judges, you have these heroes, right? The Bible's full of these heroes. Uh, David and, and his mighty men who do these mighty works, Samson, uh, uh, Deborah, like these, these amazing people who do amazing things. Solomon, who's full of wisdom. And against uh, all of those, there's this book of Ruth that's just a story about ordinary people doing ordinary things, living life. And so we're introduced to this guy named Elimelech, uh, and he takes his wife, Naomi, uh, and their two sons, and because of a famine in Bethlehem, in the land of Israel, God's the land that God had given to His people. Uh, they leave, they travel around the Red Sea to this uh, other land, this land of Moab. And while there, tragedy strikes. Um, they've escaped famine, but they have not escaped tragedy. And so, uh, Elimelech dies. So Naomi's left with her sons, and her sons take wives from that area. Uh, and then their, her sons die, and then she's left with uh, she's left with just the uh, just the daughter-in-laws. It's Naomi and these two daughters. And, and it was a terrible thing in, in this part of the world, any, any part of the world, at this time in history, to be a widow. Uh, you were helpless. You were ripe for exploitation. And you had very little choice in what you were going to do. And so uh, Naomi looks at the situation and says, I, I've heard that God has visited Bethlehem, that there's, land, there's food there, I'm going back. And about, they, start, they start the journey, and she, all of a sudden she just stops, and she looks at her two daughter-in-laws, and is like, you need to go back. She just lays out the situation for them. I got nothing. I got nothing to offer you. I have nothing to give you. There's nothing for me where I'm going back to, which definitely means there's nothing for you. Like, I at least am going back to family. At least people who know me. It's my land. You guys, I've been an immigrant for 10 years in this land. You want to go and be not just a widow, widows, but you want to be immigrants? And widows, ah, you need to go back to where you came from. And they're just tear struck, and they just, there's this beautiful scene of them weeping. And after just, just continued urging by Naomi, one of them goes back. But one of them says this amazing thing. And, and I believe and have argued that it's because she sees something in Naomi of the beauty of the God that she serves. Because she says to Naomi, where you go, I'll go. Stop, stop encouraging me to go back because where you're going, I'm going to go. And it's not just because she's like super fond of Naomi because she goes on to say, where you go, I'll go. Where you die, I'll die. 
Which means, I'm not just going to go with you, make sure you're settled, and when you pass on, I'm going to move back to my family. Nope, your people are now my people, she says. And then she says this, your God is my God, and she calls down this curse on herself and says, as a matter of fact, if I don't do what I said, may your God, Yahweh, do even more, and do, do terrible things to me than what we're about to face. Worse things to me than we're about to face. I'm going with you. So Naomi says, whatever. <laughs> it's just fine, come on. And so they arrive back at the end of chapter, uh, at the end of Act One. They arrive back in Bethlehem, and uh, everybody uh, comes out and says and sees her and says, "This is unbelievable. Could this possibly be after a decade? Could that possibly be Naomi?" And Naomi says this heartbreaking thing. She says, "Do not call me Naomi anymore," which means sweet or beautiful. She says, "Call me Mara," which means bitter, because God's dealt bitterly with me. I left full. I've come back empty. Ah. But there's this little note of, there's a hint of, hint of, of hope at the end of, of Act 1 where it says, it was the time of the barley harvest. So at least there's food, right? The famine is gone. So Act 2 and 3 kind of mirror each other. Act 2, uh, Ruth, the daughter-in-law that comes back, she says, listen, we have to go out into the field. I have to glean, which was a right of the poor in Israel. Uh, you were uh, not allowed to pick up everything that you dropped. If you were out gleaning your fields, you couldn't take the corners. If you were a landowner, you couldn't take the very edges. And you couldn't pick up uh, anything that was dropped. That was for the poor and for the sojourner. So Ruth says to her mother-in-law, listen, I'm going to go out. I'm going to see if we can find food. Maybe I find a good spot where the owner doesn't run me off or he actually is following the law. And she, she happens into this field of this man named Boaz. And Boaz is exceedingly generous. We're introduced to Boaz as a man, a worthy man. And so when we, they meet Boaz, and he's a worthy man, and he says, hey, who is this woman? And uh, the helper uh, there that is part of the, uh, the leader kind of of the, of the harvesting says, that is Ruth. She came back from Moab with, with Naomi. And Boaz goes up to her and says, I've heard what you've done. Stay here in this field. Don't go anywhere else. We'll protect you and we'll provide for you. And, and she's like, well, I don't know why I've deserved this. I don't know why I found favor. And he's like, I heard what you did for Naomi. Stay. So then he splits. And at lunch, he invites her over. He's exceeding in kind again. And then when he leaves, he tells, he tells his young men that are, are harvesting. He says, listen, uh, not only do you not, don't run her off, protect her and drop a little extra for her. The end of Act Two, she goes back home with her arms full of all of this, all of this stuff, and just so much. The commentators think that when you read about this, the Bible nerds that read this stuff are like, "Hey, like, it's probably like two or three weeks worth of food that she comes back with in one day of gleaning." And Naomi goes, "Where did you go? Like, how 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 is this possible?" She's like. I met this cat named Boaz. And she's like, dude, I know him. Like he's, like, he's family. And we're introduced to this weird word. He's a redeemer. He's a close relative. Act three mirrors act two, right? This is chapter three. Uh, she, Naomi says, hey, listen, we're approaching the end of the barley harvest. She says, listen, the barley harvest is coming to an end. There's a big party. There's a big celebration. I want you to go out. I don't want you to uh, uh, sneak down to the field in the middle of the night, which is a dangerous situation. And if it was dangerous in the middle of the day, it certainly was going to be dangerous at night. But I want you to sneak down there, and I want you to uncover his feet, lay at his feet, do whatever he tells you to do. Weird scene. We talked about it last week. But basically, it's this. It's not inappropriate, because we can tell by Boaz's reaction he gets what's going on, that, that Ruth is proposing marriage. You take care of me. And he says, listen, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, tomorrow I'm going to do what you say. But we, we're introduced to this, this wrinkle in the story, though, right? Like, oh, good, she's, this is going to be great. Uh, he says, there's, there's another person that's actually a closer relative than I am, a closer redeemer than me. We'll talk to him tomorrow. But then he gives her some treasure, goes home to Naomi. He says, you can't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed, which is interesting for a woman who says, I left empty and came back, or I left full and came back empty. He sends her back to her mother-in-law full. 
right? And so it's a beautiful scene. She goes back, and, and she goes back, and Naomi's like, hey, what happened? Like, how'd it go? And Ruth's like, he told, tells her what happened, and Naomi says, let's just stop him. Let's, don't, don't worry about it. He, he'll handle this tomorrow. And that brings us to Act 4, which is also Chapter 4. Acts 4 in two scenes and an epilogue. Uh, let's jump in. We're all caught up. Boaz had gone up to the gate of the set down there. Behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. He turned, turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. And so they sat down. And then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to, her, to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of, the, uh, buy, of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you'll redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there's no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I'll redeem it. And then Boaz said, the day that you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, uh, I cannot redeem it for myself, or I'll impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption for yourself. I, I can't redeem it. This was the custom in the former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. Uh, to confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. This was the manner of, attest, uh, of testing in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Boaz said to the elders and to all the people, your witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and to Malon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. All right, let's pause right here because this is interesting, right? It's interesting, but also weird, right? So at first when I was reading this, I was like, I, I mean, this, this, it's interesting because it's these details, right, about how things happened in this small town of Bethlehem a very long time ago, right? What interesting details about transactions, right? Um, and it's different. We actually don't have a lot of, in other places in the Bible or other places, we don't have a ton of things. We don't have anything exactly like this situation. Um, it's just been lost to history. I think now you assume that if you go to California, the laws are going to be the same there as they are here, right? But imagine when there wasn't like instant communication, right? And you would go to another town and maybe they would take the same law and it was just applied a little bit differently. That's probably what you have going on here. It's just, it's just, this is probably unique to this little area, maybe even to Bethlehem, how they're applying some of the laws and some of the rules of God. Very, very interesting to see. Neat details, right, about like how they exchanged like how they, like, hey, we made a deal. How can you tell? I got this, I got his shoe, right? It's a weird thing, right? Like to come home, sh- one shoe, right? Hopefully you would remember if you did this over and over again to trade, like right, time, right shoe this time, left time, you know, and so you should have a whole drawer full of just left shoes, right? So you would just, it was weird. But I mean, it would probably be weird if somebody from like, I don't know, outer space showed up and like, like how do you, how do you what, why do you touch each other's hands? I'm like, oh, it's, it's a greeting, also, how we make deals. And like, why do you do that? Like, I don't know. It's what we do. It's what we do. So that's what they did, right? It's an interesting little detail. But what does it matter? So what's going on here is, it's actually really interesting. So what's happening is there's these, these things that are very, very important. How you handled 
the land in Israel was a big deal. And so these, these rules about, hey, Ruth ha- sorry, Naomi has this land, and, and apparently, we don't know the details, but apparently when they left in the famine, apparently they had to sell it, and she can't afford to buy it back now that she's come back. So, so that there's actually in the law, there's rules that a close family member, so that that land, that parcel of land stays in the family, when it becomes available, they can purchase it back. They can buy it from whoever bought it. So maybe Elimelech sold it away to somebody, and now that, that she's back, they can purchase this in, in her name, right? And they would have it. Now, the land was a big, big deal, which seems weird to us because we think about things a little bit differently. Like we think about um, the flow of owning a thing a little bit differently than they did. So... Um, Here's what's going on. They had this, um, it was written into the law of God's people how to care for the land. And every 50 years, you'd have seven's a big number in the Bible. So you'd have seven, uh, seven uh, the Sabbath day, a week is seven days. And then in every seven years, you would have something would happen. And then every seven, seven years, 49 years, on the 50th year, there's this really weird verse passage in Leviticus that says it's called the day of Jubilee. If you've ever heard of it, you may have heard, if you grew up in a church tradition that's saying uh, days of Elijah, you know, these are the days of Elijah. You know what I'm talking about? You know that song? Uh, people don't like it when I make fun of that song. I'm let you know this. Jesus loves you anyway. You're still being sanctified. It's too many key changes. Anyway, so that song, they mentioned the day of Jubilee, right? And so that's a, it's a weird thing. We don't even have record of them actually ever doing it. But, but in Leviticus 25, it says this. It says, you shall count seven weeks of years, seven times seven years, so that the time of the seven weeks of years shall give you 49 years. Then you'll sound the loud trumpet on the 10th day of the seventh month. And on the day of atonement, you'll sound the trumpet throughout all your land. Consecrate the 50th year, proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a day of jubilee for you. When each of you shall return to his property and each of you shall return to his clan. That 50th year shall be a jubilee for you. In it, you'll neither sow nor reap what grows for itself, nor gather the grapes from the uh, undressed vines, for it is a jubilee. It shall be holy to you. You may eat the produce of the field. In this year of jubilee, each of you shall return to his property. And then verse 23, the land shall not be sold in perpetuity, for the land is mine. You are strangers and sojourners with me. It's a weird thing to think about that every 50 years the land would be reset. Like who owned the land? If you had sold it, if you had to sell yourself into slavery, every 50 years in God's land written into his rules, the land will go back to the family of the original owner. What a weird rule, right? Except for this, except for this, that last verse, God explains why he has set up the economy this way. Because it wasn't yours in the first place. It was mine. That land is mine. So every 50 years, I want it to go back to the people that had so that we don't have just, so you don't sell it off so it doesn't get split up. I want it protected. And also, I want to remind you every single year that that land, that's not something you own. It's something that you are stewarding for me. That is lovely right? I don't know how it would work economically, right? It doesn't make sense, right? It breaks my brain to think about. But there's this continual insistence that the land wasn't yours. So this isn't just some weird ritual. It's part of the way that they thought about ownership. 
It's not yours. That land is not yours. It is somebody else. And so, so you had not only the land, but someone who could buy it on behalf of the family. You had this redeemer who could step in and purchase it so it would stay in, but they're buying it on behalf of the person who originally owned it. Very complicated, very crazy, very beautiful, but all boiling down to this. You are not your own, and the things that you have are not yours. This is different than how we think about things, right? I mean, when I buy something, right, when I own it, like my house, like I own that. I, well, I think the bank technically owns it, right? You felt, I don't know if you ever bought a house, you fill out paperwork that's like, you'll take care of the house, you'll pay us this money. If our friends come in town, they can stay with you. Like, it's like all this like, really detailed like, information, like how this is our house, so you pay off all of it, right? I'm buying my house, but I think about it as mine. It is my house, and it will be mine, and, 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 and I'm going to have it, and, and it's for me and for my people. And the concept in Scripture is so different. It's not yours. It's mine. I made it. I've just given it to you to steward. Stewardship and ownership are two very different things. Ownership is something that I have that is mine, that I take control of, and I use how I please to benefit me. Stewardship belongs to someone else, and I am just tasked with caring for it as I best I can on behalf of that person who gave it to me. And I'm supposed to care for it, and and I'm entrusted with managing it, but it is not mine. I mean, that changes the way you live your life, if you think about things that way, right? That the things that have been given to me are not just things for me to have and own, but they're a, a gift from a holy and righteous God that I am entrusted with stewarding in the way that he would have stewarded them himself how he would have disposed of them himself. I am tasked with that. That's how God thinks about things. I think so often we get so controlling and and, and want to control and manage all of the things that we have. And so much of our anxiety and stress comes from this promise that we're supposed to be able to control these things and manage these things. And if we just use the right plan and we have the right formula and we use the right app and we have the right technology, we have have all the right things and we should be able to control and manage all of the things in our possession. But we know deep down... Actually, you know what? Right under the surface we know. It's not deep down. Right under the the surface we know that that is all a lie. It's not in our control. It's so fragile. And I think that leads to so much of our anxiety is this belief that we can control and manage it. But here's the good news. It's not yours to have to control and take care of. It was given to you to steward as best you can under the circumstances. This this is not just the things that God's given to you as a gift. He's given these things to us as gifts to manage for his good, to manage uh, manage how he's given them to us. But also, it's not just the things that he's given us. It's also the relationships that he's given us. They're given to us to steward wisely. I mean, it's just so easy to fall into a pattern and a habit of thinking about relationships and how they benefit us. But if they're not mine, if they're God's placed them in my these people in my life to care for, then He's given me these relationships to steward. I think specifically this, you know, about children because it's just it's the kind of the, the first time in my life that the, my glaring just inadequacy at this way of thinking about things became clear to me. Because I thought of my son for so long and still do most days. It is, this is, he is my son that I am to care for and to love. And I get so much joy out of my relationship with him. And I have to manage and control this. And what if instead of this being a relationship that's for me and for my benefit and for him and what I can get out of it and for him, what he can get out of it. And instead, it's a relationship given to us by God and I'm supposed to steward his heart. 
For the time that he is with me, the best I can is to shepherd his heart to love Jesus. What if that's my task? Well, see, this changes things for me. Like this. Uh, when we disagree, and it happens, uh, when we disagree and I want him to, to do a certain thing or be a certain way, most often what I find in my heart is I want to control his behavior and change his action so he will act a certain way. And so I get frustrated and angry with him and I, and I, I say things that I shouldn't, and I, an attitude that I shouldn't have, but if instead of thinking that my job is to teach him to control his behavior, if my job is to sh- not control his behavior but instead shepherd his heart, my approach has to change. Because he's not mine to control. He's been given to me as a gift for as long as he's in my life to shepherd his heart, to point him to Jesus. This applies to marriage. It applies to friendship. It applies to jobs. If it's my job, what do I do? I sit around and think about, how, like, the, like, here's the, the trap that we fall into with jobs so often is to sit around and think about the injustice of it all, right? And that's how I think about my job, right? Like, uh, not this job, not you guys, I love you. Uh, but you know, like when I have like the, other, the engineering part of my life, right? Like I think about it that way. Like, well, this is just not fair. Like I should have this and have, this person has that. And like, it's not, I give this and they don't give me. And we think about so often the injustice of it all. What if it's not for me to get what I can out of it, but it has instead been given to me to steward well? To love the people that I'm come in contact with, to take what I get from that and use it to love my family, that I don't draw meaning and safety and security from it, but I instead I take the gifts given to it and I do the best I can with them according to what God has taught me to do, what He's like and how I am. Doesn't that change things? What a blessing and a gift. That He's taught us that that's how it is. He was never mine, so I don't have to hang on as tightly. I hold it loosely and do the, what I can with it in a way that honors God. So the other thing that's weird that's going on here is beside this whole right to redeem, to, to, to purchase back the land is, is the right of redemption, the redeemer role. And so the redeemer was just someone who was tasked with the closest, the closest person to a family member if they became in distress and had to sell their land or sell themselves into slavery to pay for a debt or if the land, if they made bad decisions or if they just were bad people and did terrible things. It was a part of the law that the redeemer could come in and on, the, on behalf of the family purchase that land back so it did not leave the immediate family and go somewhere else. So it was still protected. This redeemer's responsibility, they were a brother who would take what they had for themselves, what God had given them, and instead of using it for their benefit, they would take that to care for and protect their brother. What they had been given wasn't just for them. God had given it to them to protect others as well, to purchase the debt. They had sold it away. They sold themselves. And so this redeemer was allowed to purchase this back. And they would gain some benefit for a little while, but eventually that land would go back. So in this situation, Boaz is going to buy the land. He's not going to get to keep the land. He can grow crops on it for a while. He'll benefit it from a little while, probably. But eventually this land will not be his. It will go to the descendant of Ruth, Ruth's son, who will not count as his son. It'll count as her dead husband's son. Isn't that amazing? It'll go back to him. And he steps in in this situation and says, you know what? God has given me these gifts not to get what I can out of them, but instead to make sure God has tasked me with protecting my people and my family. And he steps in and cares for them in a way that the first Redeemer wasn't willing to. It's interesting in the story. Uh, 
the beginning of this, uh, Boaz uh, introduced, listen, he said, there's a, there's a redeemer in, in Act 3. He's like, there's a redeemer closer. I'm going to meet him. And then in chapter 4, he says, he turned, he, uh, the guy comes up, right? They're sitting outside. This is where business is done at the city gates. And so they're sitting at the city gates, and uh, this guy comes up. And this, <laughs> this is how he's described. Behold, the redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. And Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit here. It's, it's, and then this guy comes along and he says, hey, listen, I'll redeem it, right? When it's just the land, I'll redeem it. Yeah, that makes sense for me to redeem this and I'll grow crops on it. And then, yeah, eventually it'll go uh, to, uh, to Naomi. But when she passes away, it'll be in part of mine. And then he goes, yeah, I'll redeem it. And then he goes, hey, also going to get Ruth. And it's not clear why, not, not clear why that uh, this is going to in some way jeopardize his inheritance. But he's like, dude, I, that, it makes sense for me to do it this way. But if I have to take Ruth as well, then that's going to go to her son and it's like becomes mine. You know what? I can't do this. And he backs out. The one who is super concerned about his legacy is the only one not named. Isn't that weird? The story that lists names, the one consumed with his legacy is just named friend. <laughs> But Boaz's name is remembered. How oh, fascinating. Fascinating, fascinating. So here's the deal. God has given us, written into his law, God has written into his law that our, we are stewards and not owners, and he has written into his law uh, that uh, he gives us things not for our own use, but for the use of others. So this is what's happening. All right, so uh, this beautiful part. So now let's, let's keep going. All right. We're doing just fine. Verse 10. Also Ruth Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead and his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses to this. 11. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we're witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrath and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. He went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. The woman said to Naomi, the women of the town said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer and may his name be renowned in Israel. And he said to you, he shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons has given birth to him. Naomi took the child, laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi they named him Obed, which means he will serve. And he was the father of Jesse, the father of David. These are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. Jesse fathered David. Calm down. Calm down. This is very exciting. All right, so here's the deal. All right, you know, hold on. I love it so much. All right, so here's the deal. This is a story of ordinary people living ordinary lives, going through loss and gain and, um, and going through all the things they do. And what God does in their lives is remarkable. I mean, what did they do to make this outcome? What did they do to deserve this? What have have they done to to manufacture this? And the answer is is nothing. They were simply obedient. 
Uh, Boaz was just obedient. This is what I'm supposed to do. He doesn't glean his fields to the edge because he's not supposed to. He protects the widow and the poor because you're supposed to. He's just generous and kind because that's the way God would have you to be. And he trusts God and he just does what he says. Ruth believes, Naomi believes, and they just are obedient. I think it's so It's so easy for us to begin to believe that what we do on the daily doesn't matter because it can just feel like a grind, right? I mean, your day after day after day is the same, right? The pile of laundry never ends. The carpool line is never short, right? It's just day after day, it's the same and you just feel caught in this thing and then you hit middle age and you're like, oh my goodness, like what have I done with my life? This is the same every day and you start buying crazy shoes. Like you're just like, ah, like why have I not done all the things that I dream of? The day after day after day after day after day. And we believe we have to go out and, and, and manufacture something big to make our life mean something. And I want you to know that one of the primary thrusts, the primary points of Ruth is that in our ordinary lives, living ordinary people, living ordinary lives, just being obedient is incredibly powerful and God uses it to change the world. Your obedience on a daily basis in the grind, when you're sitting in carpool and your heart rises up to you about frustration and anger, and you instead turn to Christ and say, and turn to God in prayer, and you allow the Holy Spirit to begin to work in your heart, to soften your heart, that all of the things that need to be get done, all the control that you have, that you want to have, and that you don't have, and you begin to give that to him and let him soften your heart, that little obedience is not little. God will do mighty things with it in your life and in the world. The little things that we do, we think they're little, turn out to be huge things. I think one of the big problems we have in our, and as, as humans is, is we have such limited sight. We, have, we can't see into the future. So I think we spend like just so much time researching where to live, where our kids should go to school, the car that we should buy. The, num- the, the number of weeks, <laughs> probably months, that I spent researching what coffee maker to buy, Right? What record player that I needed, you know? We think of these things as big decisions. But the big decision is, did you get up this morning and pay for your spouse? That's the big thing. Not where you're going to go on vacation. Did you get up and read your Bible today? Did you get up and just obey? Did, did you work today to try to forgive that person that wounded you just a little bit more than yesterday? Did you not talk about them and every time it cropped up in your heart to say something bad, fight that back down with prayer? That's not a little thing. That's the big thing. I promise you that in 25 years, those decisions on a daily basis will have more effect on your happiness and your deep satisfaction and eternity than the big decisions. Normal people living normal lives in the grind of every day, being obedient, God uses to change the world because he's working in his providence to do more than we can ever imagine. See, so Naomi has this child, Obed, and they're like, oh, everybody's like, oh, it's so amazing what God has done in your life. Oh, it's amazing. And then there's this, this just this huge revelation. The story just stopped at Naomi having this beautiful little baby that she became his nurse and cared for him, and he was going to care for her in his old age. What a beautiful story. But then... It says this, a son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. God had made this promise. God makes this promise to David. When he says to David, David's going to become king. 
That promise that he makes to David, uh, it's a covenant, right? It's this relationship. He says, here's the deal. David, you will always have a descendant on the throne of Israel. And that through your descendants, I'm going to rescue the whole world. He makes his promise to David. It is through the line of David that we get Jesus. Matter of fact, Matthew chapter 1. Matthew starts his entire gospel. Let me tell you about Jesus, Matthew says. And then he says this, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. The son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah, the father of Perez by by, uh, Zerah, by Tamar. And Perez, the father of Hezron. And Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Minadab. Minadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse. Jesse, the father of David, the king. And he continues to go on how through this line that includes this Moabite foreigner, Ruth, God brings the savior of the world through ordinary people being obedient. Naomi doesn't know this. Naomi dies not knowing what God has done with her obedience. But what he does through her obedience is brings the savior of the world into the world un. Believable! What a story of God working out his providence, to his design for how he will bless and care for us and approach us and draw us near through ordinary people living ordinary lives of obedience. But it's not just God working out his massive providence on a huge scale. He also does it in their lives. This whole story, they go on and on through this. How the, how, how they, just they keep praying for one another. May God bless you. May God bless you. May God bless you. May God do this in your life. And may God make you have, this woman is worth more than seven sons. And, and, and all of this happens. It's not just that God is going to work out his huge plan through us. He will. The bringing about of his kingdom, he is. Through us and our obedience, he's doing it right now. But I also believe he blesses us. Now, here's the deal. I gotta be really careful and I gotta, like, I try not to footnote everything I say. I hate that. But let me, I got a footnote here. This is not, if your faith is strong enough, God will give you a bigger house, prosperity gospel. I'm not saying that. But I am saying that God seems to bless those who honor him those who obey him, those who do with what he's given to them what he would have them do with it, not only the natural consequences of being somebody who forgives, which is a good thing, but also he just blesses. I'm not saying financially. I'm not saying anything else. I'm saying he honors and cares for those he loves. Now, here's the truth. Here's the reality. Sometimes that doesn't happen right away. Sometimes it's not until the Redeemer is revealed. So it might be on into eternity. But we have to have a longer view of our life. This is not all we have. There is a kingdom that is coming, and when we obey here, even if we do not see the fruits in this present life, we, I promise you that God is preparing in you and for you far more riches than you could have ever dreamed. He's promised it to be so. This is the story of Scripture. When our Redeemer is revealed, the one who paid the price, the one who purchased us back, when Christ is revealed, we draw life from him. We know that it's not just in this life, but eternal life. And we know that he blesses those who obey and follow him. We are comforted by the fact that this is the reality that God has revealed to us in Jesus. One of the things that strikes me about this whole book is how often, uh, I think one of the things, I should say this, is convicting to me is how often 
in this book, in this story, people pray that God blesses someone else. I'm pretty good at praying God blesses me. But Boaz sees in Ruth someone who is faithful and prays that God blesses her. Naomi, the people see something that God has done and they pray that God continues to bless Naomi. The people at the gate recognize what Boaz is doing and they pray that God blesses Boaz because he is right. He's a, he's a worthy man. I think we need to be better at looking at those around us and going, God bless that person. They deserve it. They're, they're worthy. God, God changed their heart. Whatever blessing means and whatever it looks like, God bless them so that they praise you and your name is made great. Those acts of obedience, God honors. And we get to live that out and we live that together. Uh, their um, faithfulness to one another is unbelievable. So that's what we do. We seek in our obedience to forgive. We seek in our obedience to Christ to love well. We seek in our obedience to Christ to take the things that we've been given as gifts and steward them well. We take the gifts that he's been given us and protect and use them to love others well. We take what he's given us, the time that he's given us, the resources that he's given us to care for one another, to be loyal to one another, to serve one another. This is what it's supposed to look like. You know how I know? Because this is what Christ came and did. He set aside what he could have to come and die for me. To, to purchase back from all of the things that I give myself to. For all of the consequences, sorry, all, all, all of the right just uh, consequences of the things that I sell myself to. To purchase them back and say, you are mine. All the things that you've done, the cost has been paid. And now you are mine. And when I give you steward as I would have you stewarded. What a beautiful way to live. What a freeing way to live. What a gift to belong, not to myself. That my only hope in life and in death is that I do not belong to myself. The things that I have are not mine, but I belong both in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who has paid for my sins in such a way that nothing can happen that is not for my eternal good. This is the promise of Scripture. This is the promise of the one that comes from the one that Naomi holds. <laughs> from Obed to Jesse to David to Jesus. We have this life and this way of being in this world because of what he has done on our behalf. God, give us courage to live that way. Let's pray. Father, Spirit, come. Give us strength to live. Give us strength to obey. Give us strength to see with eyes uh, that you give us that uh, so much more is available than what we can lay our hands on. Right? That so much more is available into eternity. So much more is available in this life. That we just are just so twisted in our thinking and understanding about what it means to be fulfilled, what it means to be happy. But you have provided for us in Jesus a way that we could have never even dreamed of. Man. Give us an understanding that you have given us life in, in our obedience, in our simple laying aside, our simple dying to ourselves every day, what we could have for ourselves to do what you would have us to do, to be loyal to one another, to commit to one another, to be faithful to one another, to be faithful to you and our love for each other, to do all of the things about bringing about the kingdom in our hearts and in our thinking and in our families and in this church and in this city. Give us the strength, the courage, and the wisdom to live this way and be this way. Yeah. What a gift. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.